Dr. Joel Gibson, we thank you for pressing through this morning to lead us in worship when there's pain in the offering. We still worship God. And Trey Gibson, Terrence and Jewel's son, we are praying with you. We're praying for you. On the day when he received the news that his best friend had passed in a car accident was the exact same day that his mother and father blessed him, Trey, with his own car. So what a time to go from rejoicing to sorrow. And even last week, um, I had family in town from Maryland. And my nephew-in-law, who's married to my niece, received some horrible news on Saturday night of last week. Late Saturday night, he found out that his father passed away in Florida. And he came to church last Sunday to worship. I didn't know if he was going to fly back to Maryland early to be with family there but he decided to come into the house of the Lord and knowing what he was walking through I was praying for him as we were worshiping and the songs that God gave Dr. Jewel last week and the way she led extemporaneously at different portions it was as if God just catered many aspects of worship for my nephew-in-law last week to help him get through. I just want to let y'all know that worship is powerful and it's real. Satan wanted Jesus to worship him. But Jesus said, away from me. For the Lord God, you shall worship and serve alone. When we worship God, Satan must flee. When we worship God, and we're reminded that our Savior is risen. Death loses its sting. And we're reminded that the grave has no victory. Worship, not just here on Sunday morning, but throughout the week to worship, to be intentional, to praise Him, to thank Him, to bless Him, to pour out your heart before Him. Worship. Let's pray. Ah, yeah. <laughs> You're amazing. So amazing. And yea, though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we don't need to fear any evil because you are with us. And you're the God who is not only with us in these valley moments of death and depression, discouragement, disillusionment, you're with us in the valley, but you also have a tendency in a way of pointing out lilies in the valley. <laughs> you show us good even when times are hard and bad. Because if you could defeat death, you can do anything. <coughs> and we just thank you for being present Jehovah Shammah, the God who knows our burdens before we even have to tell you about them. You're amazing. 
the fact that you love us and you have not given us what our sins deserve you are amazing that you would give us Jesus your darling son to be butchered as a lamb in our place for our sins you are amazing and we worship you with all that we have in our brokenness we worship you in our doubt and unbelief we worship you on the mountaintop when things are clear we worship you because there's none like you now father god in the name of jesus your son and by the power of the holy spirit would you help me to teach and preach your word might there be a breakthrough for all of god's people today may we walk out of here with a little bit more understanding of the kingdom of god knowing that we are in a war and the kingdom of darkness works very hard to deceive us, to distract us, to get our eyes off of you. But Lord, center us in this moment. As the seed goes forth, may it find hearts that are fertile and ready to receive your word and a heart willing and able to put the word into practice. So soften the thorny ground and the stony ground. If any of us have those today, bitterness and unforgiveness Oh God, have mercy on us and let your word find good soil this morning. Oh God, you're amazing. And I'm excited to see what you're going to say to me and through me. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said, amen, amen. If you believe God's amazing with me, can we give him a hand praise? Come on, let's give him a hand praise. And listen, and if the devil been messing with you, I want you to clap your hands like the devil's head is in between your hands. Huh? Not today, devil. Uh-uh, no, 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 no. He gets the glory. He gets the glory. He gets the glory. God is good. God is good. And he's amazing and he's worthy to be praised. He's worthy to be praised. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. He's worthy to be praised. I don't know what you're going through, but he does. And he's worthy. He's so worthy. He's so good. Well, amen, amen. I've got some good news for you before we get into the word. Turning your Bibles to 2 uh, Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Got some good news. Uh, let's see here. Since 2017, we've been working on this thing called the Fuller Story in the city of Franklin where I live and where Strong Tower was birthed, oh boy, 26 years ago. And I won't get into all of the nuances of the fuller story. Um, I will say that we were able, with the help of God and the support of the mayor and all the city officials to put up five historical markers um, in the center of the city uh, in 2019 that spoke of the African and African-American experience in the city of Franklin uh, during and after and even before the Civil War because for over a hundred years, pretty much only one kind of story was being told um, and there needed to be a fuller story of the history uh, being told. So we were able to put up these historical markers that talked about life before, during, and after the Civil War from an African and African-American perspective. Um, some would say that was unheard of, what we were able to accomplish. Uh, but now that vision 
it has a part B and it culminates this month and that is the placement of a statue of a black man who represents the 186,000 men who fought for the United States colored troops. And so he will stand in front of the second courthouse uh, and, uh, and he will be transported from Ohio where he was sculpted and, and melted together. It's a tedious process, uh, but he is finished and he will come to town on Thursday, October, I believe it's 21st. And, uh, and the city officials and the folks from Ohio who work at the foundry and the people locally who made the base on which he's going to sit, they will all work together to install him uh, right there on the square that Thursday night. And then Saturday morning will be the unveiling and dedication of that statue. So uh, it, it's been a, a long journey, uh, but, but we're, we're here. So be prayerful, because the enemy, of course, doesn't like this, because we're talking about representation. We're talking about inclusion. We're talking about truth, and those three things he does not like. But to hell with the devil. Uh, we, we go forward in Jesus' name, because what is going on here sets a pattern for other cities, especially in the South, on how to deal with the racial tension and challenges and division that's prevalent still today in 2021. And a lot of it has to do with representation and telling the truth and bringing forth the voices of the marginalized and unheard in a way that uh, has not been characteristic of our country. Uh, so this is our history. Our children need to see these things and learn these things. And so, um, so this is huge. This is huge what's going to happen. So we're calling it three days with the fuller story. On that Thursday night as the statue's being installed, um, those of us in the fuller story are going to be in the Franklin Theater that night telling the story of how we got to where we are, which started from the events in Charlottesville, Virginia, uh, when there was basically a race riot over the removal of a uh, Confederate statue to Robert E. Lee, which led to the death of a young white woman named Heather Heyer. So that is what led us to gather in Franklin around the Confederate monument there to begin to ask God to have mercy. And out of that sprang this idea of the fuller story and representation on a place of equal nobility to the Confederate statue. And so uh, this is huge. So that Thursday we'll just have a gathering and we'll talk. It'll be streamed for those who won't come to the theater. And then on Friday we're having uh, a, a, an evening of elegance because something like this needs to be celebrated. So we are renting Liberty Hall, where the church used to meet for about five years, and we want you to put on your best gown and tuxedo and come on out that evening uh, for a time of celebration. And then on Saturday morning, there will be, uh, at 10.30 a.m., the unveiling and dedication of the statue. And so uh, great things, great things are in store. But with that, I ask you to pray. Because just as much as this is a strategic move, the way spiritual warfare works, the enemy always tries to counterpunch the things that we do for God. So I ask that you pray for us, pray for your pastor, all right? Um, it's been a whirlwind for our family. Um, those of you who've been walking with us, you know that I came through a season of my mother's health um, declining 
which uh, led to her uh, transition into glory. And we had to go and lay her to rest. And God, you know, called me to preach that, her eulogy, and to commit her remains. And then coming right out of that, I became a professor at Trevecca. And uh, it's not just the book stuff that's heavy, because if the professor doesn't know what he or she is talking about, that means a fog in the, at the lectern, excuse me, a, 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 yeah, a, a, a fog in the lectern is confusion in the classroom. So, so I got to make sure I know what I'm talking about. On top of, I got to learn all the technology of how to do all this stuff. And Loretta said, Pastor, I'll help you. So it's a lot of tech. So there's pressure. And then we went from that into a wedding of my daughter. First wedding in the Williamson family and all the stuff with that. And now we're into the fuller story. So it's just been. And my wife and I are exhausted. But the joy of the Lord is our strength. So just pray for us. Y'all don't mind me keeping it real, do you? I'm just keeping it real with you. Uh, I don't know any other way to keep it. So this is um, major for what is happening. Because this, we're dealing with spiritual warfare. And when you come against spiritual forces that have been pretty much having a stronghold in the city since 1799, then with the placement of the monument in 1899, these demons have had their, their, their way and their say. And now the narrative and the spirit is being challenged with light and truth and love. So this is war, as much as worship was warfare what we're doing as a church, expanding God's diverse kingdom is also warfare. But man, I'm all up for it. I'm up for the challenge. I loves to fight. Amen. In Jesus' name. Now, y'all get that later. That's color purple. But I loves to fight (laughs) for Jesus. Amen. Because he fought for me. All right, there it is. 2 Timothy chapter 1. We're in a new series. We're starting in the book of 2 Timothy, which is Paul's last letter, the letter that he writes to his protege, and as we'll see today, son in the faith, before he experiences execution at the hands of the state. And so we're going to spend upwards of three months in the book of 2 Timothy, a very personal letter. And, uh, and so we're going to walk through it line upon line, Verse upon verse. But I'll begin this morning by saying that when Jesus began his earthly ministry, when he began his earthly ministry, uh, he was baptized to commence that his ministry was inaugurating and beginning. And um, the father showed up at the baptism of Jesus And he spoke from heaven as the Holy Spirit descended on Christ like a dove, speaking of the fact that he is the anointed one with the Holy Spirit. The Father spoke from heaven. So you see the triune presence of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Father said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So the father uh, gave his son a public display of affection. He said, this is my beloved son. I love him. Uh, I'm pleased with him. And so when a father, the father does that, that's a pattern for all fathers in the room. 
But not only that, near the end of Jesus' ministry, the Father spoke from heaven again in Matthew 17 when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration. And the transfiguring was when his glory began to shine through his human flesh because Jesus was God in the flesh. And it was as if he allowed the glory just to peel back, or the flesh to peel back for a minute that the glory might shine on that mountain. And the father spoke at that time and he said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Then he said, listen to him. You know why you need to listen to him? Because can't nobody speak or talk like he can. He's good at something. And so the father had no problem displaying public displays of affection, PDAs with his son, saying, I love you, uh, I'm pleased with you, and you're gifted, son. You're a great orator, great leader, great servant, great king. And so again, that, that, that's a great example for us as fathers in particular to know how to bless our children publicly. And even though they may act like they don't want us to do that, they're pushing us away, oh, dad, but they're also saying, come on in, dad, and, and also affirm me publicly. And so since God knows the importance of having public displays of affection between a father and a son, uh, we're going to see today in our text that the apostle Paul knew that too. So look with me in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. The Bible says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, a beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I call you back to verse 2, where it says, to Timothy, a beloved son. So today, I'm going to preach a message entitled, A Beloved Son. A Beloved Son. Now, I thought about giving this sermon a different title. Um, one of my favorite sitcoms of all time is Sanford and Son. <laughs> so I almost called this message, Paul and Son. But I said, no, I can't do that because Fred Sanford wasn't always a good father because he spent a whole lot of time calling Lamont a dummy. And so I said, no, I can't use that because we're talking about fathers affirming and showing affection to their sons, not calling them dummy. So I said, no, I can't use that title. So we will just stick with the title right here from verse 2, a beloved son. Ah, yeah. Paul not only expressed this PDA, this public display of affection to Timothy, but throughout this letter, there will be constant encouragement and admonishment from Paul to Timothy. So I want you to hear that. He gives him affection, public affection, as we'll see today and throughout the course of this series, that Paul is a spiritual father to Timothy. And he gives this young man affection, public affection, saying, I love you. You are my beloved son. But with that, he also gave to his spiritual son encouragement and admonishment throughout the letter. You're going to see words of encouragement. 
and you're going to see words of admonishment. Why does Paul do that? Paul does this because every man needs encouragement and admonishment to be successful. I said every man needs encouragement and admonishment in order to be successful. Now, before the sisters tune me out, let me say this also. Every woman needs encouragement and admonishment in order to be successful. Now, so as we work through what is called a pastoral epistle, Paul's last letter, a pastoral epistle, it was written to a pastor, Timothy. If you are not a pastor, that does not mean God doesn't have a word for you from 2 Timothy. In other words, you don't have to be a pastor to get something from this passage. And you don't have to be a man or a son or a father to get something from this book and from this passage today, all right? But there is specificity that we must zero in on, even though there's a general message for all of us, there is a specific and necessary message for fathers and sons to hear whether we're talking biological or spiritual, if you're with me, just say amen. Amen, amen. Amen. It's needed today. But I need to ask the question, what is the difference between encouragement and admonishment? If it's found throughout these four chapters, encouragement and admonishment, what's the difference? Well, encouragement is the act of giving someone holistic support. Okay, so if you encourage someone, you are giving them support holistically. We're talking about personal support, spiritual support, emotional support, verbal support, financial support, and even physical support. And you give this encouragement, this holistic encouragement, especially in times of discouragement. So if you're encouraging someone, you are supporting them holistically, especially in times of discouragement. Encouragement instills hope and confidence in someone because Timothy's going to need some hope and confidence instilled in him as a young pastor. October is Pastor Appreciation Month, and there are all kinds of statistics that come out about how many pastors quit the ministry and, and give up. Some pastors even commit suicide because of the pressure of pastoring and trying to shepherd God's people. And so Timothy needed encouragement and hope instilled in him from his pastor, his spiritual father, Paul. Encouragement uplifts a person who is down. Encouragement tells a person not to give up. Encouragement persuades someone to start doing something positive or to keep doing something positive. And so my question is, who is the father or father figure in your life who encourages you? Okay, please stay with me. Don't tune me out because I know as I talk about fathers, some of us, we're having wounds opened up, okay? But God wants to Uh, 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 not only dress that wound, but he can't dress it properly without addressing it. Some of us have had surgeries that weren't done properly. And we have been under the care of another doctor who said, I've got to go back in and correct what the first doctor either did poorly or didn't do enough of. So they got to open the wound back up in order to see healing occur. So This series, especially today's message, might be a little uncomfortable for men and women who have father wounds and things that have been inflicted upon your soul by your dad. 
But your heavenly father is speaking today and, and he's wanting to dress that wound and address that wound today. Amen. He wants you well. Um, and so when we think of the fathers who encourage us or the spiritual fathers who encourage us, I know we have friends because there are certain people with certain gifts and personalities that when you're down, that's who you want to talk to. Uh, 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 so you call them, you reach out to them because you know they'll help lift you up. Uh, but man, when we have a father figure who can do that, wow. Now what's admonishment? Admonishment is the act of firmly warning, advising, correcting, or reprimanding someone. Now usually we don't call this person. You know, th this person normally calls us, okay? We, we like <laughs> encouragement, but we don't like admonishment. But you can't grow without admonishment. I'm going to say it again. Admonishment is the act of firmly warning, advising, correcting, or reprimanding someone. Admonishment lovingly urges a person to beware of potential pitfalls. So giving a warning that you might be aware of a pitfall. So young Timothy, flee youthful lusts. That's an admonishment. Admonishment offers wisdom and counsel, even if it is not asked for. But that's what fathers do. We offer things that are not asked for because we see things that need to be said. Admonishment tells a person who or what to stay away from while telling that person who or what to move towards. Did you get that? Admonishment will tell you who or what to stay away from while encouraging you who and what to move towards. Who is the father or father figure in your life who admonishes you, who corrects you, who challenges you? We all need that. Patrick Murphy, who is a coach at the University of Alabama, once said, uncoachable kids become unemployable adults. Let your kids get used to someone being tough on them. It's life. Get over it. That, that, that's what Patrick Murphy said. He, he said, uncoachable kids become unemployable adults. Because so often in our parenting, it's not even-handed. It, it, it's out of kilter, where we'll emphasize probably too much encouragement. And by the way, Patrick Murphy uh, coaches uh, women at the University of Alabama, their softball team. And so he, he's saying basically, parents, I might have to be tough on your kids in order for them to be not only the best player they can be, but the best person they can be. And for some of us, it was a coach who gave us that kind of admonishment that we didn't always get at home. I won't talk about this culture where everybody gets a trophy, even if you stink up the place, you get a trophy. And I don't know if that helps us in the long run uh, when it's just all encouragement and very little admonishment. But is that not the challenge? Everyone needs encouragement and admonishment to succeed. These two qualities have, should have been, should have been, should have been instilled into us first and foremost by our parents. Encouragement and admonishment should have been instilled in us by our parents. But the problem is that some of us had parents who offered all encouragement and little to no admonishment, which meant we were spoiled. And we always got our way and we were always the darling and, and all that stuff. 
whereas others had parents who offered all admonishment and no encouragement. You were always being corrected. You were never praised. <laughs> you were never supported. You were never encouraged. You were always told what you didn't do. Even if you got uh, an A on your paper, they're pointing out why you didn't get a 100 on the paper because you got this wrong. Or, or you may have had a wonderful uh, volleyball game, but they're going to talk about the ones you missed and all that stuff. And they don't know how to encourage. So we grew up in a home where admonishment, admonishment, admonishment is all we got. Or worse, or worse, some of us grew up receiving neither encouragement nor admonishment from our parents or from the people who raised us. We didn't get either one. And so there's something empty in us, something hurting. But this is why, oh my God, the local church is so powerful. Because whatever you didn't get at home domestically, your foster home, wherever you may have grown up, whatever you didn't get, you have an opportunity to get in God's house. We're called a household of faith, the family of believers. And so in this place, the older men are to treat the younger men like sons. And the younger men, the sons, are to look up to the older men like fathers. So your biological father may have dropped the ball, or the person who helped rear you and raise you may have not been there. But in the house of God, in the family of God, there are mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters. Like Jesus said, when his mother and his brothers came to interrupt one of his uh, preaching moments, they said, Jesus, your mother and your brothers, they're out here. Jesus said, okay, okay, I'll get with them. But these folks I'm talking to right here, they're my, they're my mother and my brothers too. In other words, they're family. And sometimes spiritual family, I don't know if y'all praying with me, can be closer than your biological family. <laughs> this is the good news. That again, God places the lonely in families. And that's just not being adopted into a family, yes. But in the local church, the household of God, this is a family that God places lonely people in. Now I'm going to say this, I could get a shoe thrown at me. It won't be the first time. When it comes to teaching a boy how to be a man, the ideal person to do that is a father or a father figure. Now, that could get me thrown out in some places by saying it. I said the ideal person to do that is a father figure. That doesn't mean that a mother can't raise her son well if they're in a single-parent home, which is what we're going to get into today. But the ideal person to raise a boy into a man is a father or a father figure because there are just some things a mother does not know about being a man and there are things a man doesn't know about being a woman. That's why in the ideal situation, we called it in school the nuclear family. I never understood why they put nuclear on that. But the ideal is when husband and wife, mom and dad work together to raise the children up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. But a lot of us did not have that. Ray Charles the late Ray Charles did not have a father present in his life, but his mother raised him, and his mother taught him how to be a man. Again, the ideal is to have a man to do it, but when no man is there, a mother will be a father and a mother because she's going to do what she got to do. And she had this blind little boy, and one of the things she instilled in him was, you don't let anybody feel sorry for you. You don't let anybody do things for you that you can do for yourself. And I heard an interview uh, by him just recently 
uh, that they had when he was talking about how his mother raised him that to do not use your handicap as an excuse to fall behind. You work harder, uh, you do what you have to do. And so he says, I know how to clean a house even though I'm blind because my mother taught me. He says, I know how to make breakfast and make food for myself because my mother taught me. He says, I know how to pack my bag when I go on the road because my mother taught me to be independent and not have to be dependent on people simply because I'm blind. So that lesson, rather than getting it from his father, he got it from his mother. But I'm just saying that the ideal person to help turn a boy into a man is a father. But there are so many fathers who are either absent or if they're present, they're dead slash deadbeat. And so when we look at this passage today, Paul is going to see a potential in Timothy. He, he sees something in this young man, but he also saw something that was missing. He saw something that was missing. But dig this, Timothy's mother, she saw the potential in her son, but she also saw that something was lacking in his development. And she knew that what her son Timothy needed, Paul was the right man to provide. I know you don't believe me, but go on over to Acts chapter 16. Go over to Acts 16. And let's see the background of this story. Let's look at how this beloved son Timothy, how he and Paul first connected. Because here Paul is, 66, 67 A.D., about to have his head cut off. And he's writing to his son in the faith. And he wants to encourage him and admonish him while also showing public displays of affection towards him. And he says twice in this letter, while he's on death row waiting to die, he says to his son, uh, come quickly to me. Uh, can you hurry up and get here? Because this, this is the beautiful two-way street. A father is going to invest into his son, biologically, spiritual son, but there will come a time when that spiritual son is going to give back to that father. And that father's going to need his son's presence, his son's encouragement, because it's never one way with humans. You know, and, and, and I'm sure Paul didn't have to wait till the twilight of his life to enjoy the relationship that he had with his son. I'm sure iron was still sharpening iron as two men were growing in the Lord. But who was this beloved son and how did they connect? Look with me at Acts 16 verse 1. This is Paul's second missionary journey. He and Barnabas had already gone out uh, in chapters uh, 13 through 14. They had a break in chapter 15 with the Jerusalem council because so many Gentiles were coming into the faith. So the Jews, because Christianity started amongst the Jewish people, how do we receive the Jews who are coming into the kingdom? So they had to deal with that in a council in chapter 15. And then in chapter 16, Paul embarks on the second journey, but this time he takes Silas with him. And not only does he have Silas, he has Dr. Luke with him as well. Now, in the first missionary journey, it was Paul and Barnabas and a young guy named John Mark. But they went out there and John Mark saw that spiritual warfare, that hard work. He's like, mm -mm, this is not for me. Homeboy went back home. And so now on the second missionary journey, Paul's got a new team. But he's missing a young protege. Oh, look with me now at Acts 16, verse 1. Then he came to Derby and Lystra or Lystra. 
And behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted to have him go on with him and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So this is the first time these two men meet. And what Acts 16.1 lets us know is that Timothy was a disciple. He was a believer in Jesus Christ. That's what it says right there in verse 1. He was a certain disciple. And so he was born again. He was a follower of Jesus. Another thing that we know from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, that when Timothy was raised, he was raised in a Christian household with his mother and with his grandmother. His mother's name was Eunice. His grandmother's name was Lois. And Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.15 how from infancy he was taught the scriptures, that he was in children's ministry learning the scriptures, that he was in student ministry learning the scriptures. So as a young child, an infant, his home, they prioritized the reading, the hearing, and the teaching of the word of God. And that's why we have Awana and all the things we do because when our children get the word, it helps them to combat against all the lies that are in the culture. It instills strength in them and who they are in Christ, their identity when the world is trying to place an identity on them that is contrary to the kingdom of God. And so we got to teach our children who they are and whose they are and why they are. That comes from the scriptures. If the only time you eat is on Sunday, you're not healthy. If the only time you spend time in the word of God, which is like meat and milk, you're not growing, you're not healthy as a follower of Christ. And if you're not eating and if you're not encouraging your children to eat, digest the scriptures, then we're not equipping them to their capacity to make a stand. Young Timothy, not only was he a believer, he was taught the scripture as an infant. But also the Bible says that Timothy's mother was a Jewish woman who believed. Let me go back here. It says in verse one that he was the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed. So his mother was a believer. And 2 Timothy chapter one, verse five says that his mother's name was Eunice. It says his grandmother's name was Lois. So he comes from this matriarchal line of godly women who taught him the word. So his mother was a Jewish believer. But then the Bible goes on to tell us about his father. It says also in verse 1 that there was a certain Jewish woman who believed, that's his mother, but, so you see the contrast there, his father was a Greek. That means his father was not Jewish. His father was a Gentile. His father was a European. So a European man and a Jewish woman got together. Bible doesn't tell us, uh, uh, you know, what led to them courting, dating, getting married, whatever. But we have here a Greek man who, and when the Bible says this, and when we read the rest of Scripture, Greek not only speaks of his ethnicity or nationality as a non-Jewish person, but it's also said in such a way that he was an unbeliever. Mom was a believer. Dad was an unbeliever. 
Again, we don't know how that happened, but it happens. Missionary dating goes wrong sometime. Maybe he said, I'll go to church with you. And once they got married, he, yeah, no, hey, I don't know. <laughs> but mom and dad are in a mixed marriage. And it's not so much about the ethnicity. It's about the spirituality. And Timothy, who's born out of that relationship, he is mixed ethnically. He's part Jewish, he's part Gentile, and everybody in the community knows that. And not only that, his dad, who's a Greek and an unbeliever, does not circumcise his son according to the Jewish tradition of a child being circumcised, a male child, on the eighth day as a sign of the Abrahamic covenant that God cut them out of a people and made them a people distinct and unique, worshiping Yahweh, that the circumcision of the male was a sign of that covenant. And so dad did not raise his son spiritually or within that tradition that his mom comes from. And so everybody in the community knew that he was a Jewish man who had not been circumcised. But still, in verse 2, they spoke well of this young man. They saw greatness and potential in this young man. But the Bible also tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, that Timothy was young. He was a young man because Paul had to say to him in that first letter, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. So he was a young preacher who had a, a, a responsibility overseeing the churches in Ephesus. So he was the bishop over all of these churches in Ephesus, and I'm sure that there were older men who wanted to look down on him because he was a young man in a great position. And Paul, his spiritual father in 1 Timothy 4 said, don't let him look down on you because you're youthful or because you're young. So we see things about this man. And after meeting Timothy, Paul said, I see what the people in the community see about him. And he said, I want him to go with me. Look at verse 3. Paul wanted to have him go on with him. Paul saw something in Timothy. He says, I want this young man to be with me. And one of the greatest feelings in life is for a boy to have a father or a father figure express that he wants him. Yeah. That's one of the greatest feelings when a young boy or even an older boy called a man, has a father or a father figure express, I want you. You're valuable to me. I, I, I see value in you. I want you in a healthy way. So if that's one of the best feelings in life is to have a father or father figure express that he wants you, the worst feeling in life, or one of the worst, is when a boy has a father or a father figure express that he doesn't want his son, that he doesn't want this young man, that that hurts. And sometimes it doesn't have to be specifically verbalized to say, I don't want you, boy. The actions will show a lack of value on the young man to say that basically dad is treating you like trash, a second-class citizen, if you will, and the boy grows up trying to find a place to get the affirmation, the uh, encouragement, the admonishment uh, uh, from various sources because he grew up with a, a, a lack 
in his home because he didn't have healthy male interactions. So either he will become a whore, mistreating women because of this void in him, or he will join a group, depending upon where you live, a gang, where they will affirm him and show that a man is one who is violent in his expression. And so, or man will go looking and searching in all the wrong places because of the lack of expression and love that he did not receive from a father. But here's the step of faith. Here's the step of faith. Timothy's mother allowed her son to go with Paul because Paul wanted him to come with him. Again, I don't know how old Timothy was, but he's still with his mother. And I'll talk about that in a moment. But she blesses him, encourages him, and allows him to go with this man, Paul, who verse 3 says, Paul wanted to have him go on with him. And then the next sentence says, and he took him. He took him. And in order for that to happen, mom and grandma would no doubt have to give their blessing. You say, all right, pastor, why is this a big deal? Well, this is a big deal because mom let her son go with a man who had a bounty on his head. Y'all understand what I just said. Mom let her son go with the man that was being targeted by people who were trying to assassinate him. People trying to kill Paul. All right, let me give you more. Flip back to Acts 14. First missionary journey stuff here. And Paul finds himself in Lystra or Lystra which is Timothy and Eunice's and Lois's hometown. Mom knew who she was entrusting her son to because she knew what happened in verse 19 of chapter 14. It says, Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city. What city? Lystra. Supposing him to be dead. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city. And the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. So during his first missionary journey, they heard about this man preaching the gospel in their hometown. And he's in this area where there's Iconium, Derby, and Lystra. And there were some people who came from Iconium because they don't like how God used Paul in Iconium. And they came there and they stoned the man to the point where everybody thought he was dead. And they dragged him out of the city, but the saints gathered around him, prayed, and in a sense, Paul had a resurrection. Some say that this was the time he was caught up to the third heaven, you know, that he kind of died and, and came back. We, we don't know for sure, but it says here, they supposed him to be dead. And all this happened right there in downtown Nashville, downtown Franklin, Lystra, and so he comes back to town again and says, I want to take your boy with me. And mom says, go ahead, knowing that folk are trying to kill this man. In other words, she's putting her son in a place of harm, potential harm. Why is she doing that? Because she knows it's time now. I done raised him up to send him out. I have done everything I could as a woman, mother, raising him. He needs a man in his life. And I'll let even a man who's living under death threats Walk with my son. This was not easy to do. Mothers, if you hold on to your sons too long or too tightly, you will hinder their growth and development. 
Mothers, if you coddle your sons, you will hurt your sons. Mothers, if you don't let your sons go, they will never grow. Mothers, if you fight all your son's battle, what they say to you, I'm going to come up to that school. What they say, I'm coming to that job. Mothers, if you fight all your son's battles, your son will never learn how to fight on his own. It's tight, but it's right. But why is it sometimes difficult for single mothers to let go of their sons? Because this wasn't easy. Why is it difficult sometimes? Well, that son can operate like a covering for mom. He's the male in the house. He's like a covering for her. Secondly, he operates like her provider or co-provider. And she's used to having a man do something consistently, helping with the home. But then thirdly, in her mind, her son is all she has. And she doesn't want to let him go. Which is why even in the slave culture, slave mothers would publicly demean their children, especially their sons, putting them down publicly in hopes that master would not sell the kids off to another plantation away from her. And so she would publicly put them down. Boy, you can't do this. Boy, you can't. Hoping that she would devalue him in the sight of the master who may look to trade him or sell him. And so this is perpetuated many times in our culture where mothers chide and put down and speak negatively of their sons. It's a fear kind of a thing, to protect while they're tearing down. But, but, but again, it doesn't work because everybody needs encouragement and uplifting. Look at Acts 16.3. Let's go back to Acts 16.3 as I close. Acts 16.3. This is Paul wanted to have him go on with him and he took him. Again, it's good when a man wants another man in a godly way. Because some of us grew up in a place where we've had men want us, but it wasn't godly. But he wanted him, he took him. And then it says, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was Greek. So Paul circumcised Timothy. Circumcision. Circumcision is a very delicate, personal, trusting, and painful thing for a man to do and to let a, another man do for him. Circumcision. As I mentioned earlier, according to Jewish law, kids were to be circumcised, boys, on the eighth day. On the eighth day. So while they're still babies on the eighth day. Paul, when sharing his testimony in Philippians 3, he says he was circumcised on the eighth day. And when circumcision would happen, either the father or a father in the community would circumcise the boy. Uh, it was like a rite of passage for a baby. And they would, uh, and, and if a father or a father figure didn't know how to do it, then a physician in the community would circumcise the boy. And they would use either a flint knife or a sharpened piece of glass to cut the foreskin, okay? So, so it was something that was done to babies. Very rarely was it done to grown men because it's very, very painful. And you can read through the scriptures where you see it happening with grown men and how it sidelines men in pain and agony for days. But for Timothy to let this man, who's virtually a stranger, take him behind a curtain and for him to drop his robe and to have another man handle him that way in a surgical procedure 
with a flint knife. That made them close real quick. Yeah, they got close real quick to have another man cut your sex organ. Oh, yeah. But Paul did this because because when I look at this theological, I'm like, Paul, you're the guy who says uh, uh, Gentiles don't need to be circumcised, that circumcision doesn't make one a Christian. Faith in Christ makes one a Christian. Circumcision doesn't avail as faith in Christ. So, Paul, if you're preaching the gospel of justification by grace through faith, why you circumcise this young man? The reason why he did it was because it had nothing to do about salvation. Timothy was already a disciple. It had everything to do about effectiveness in ministry because Paul knew that his audience, uh, the Gentile folks in his audience wouldn't care, but the unbelieving Jews in his audience, they wouldn't listen to this guy knowing that he had not been circumcised. So circumcision is a stumbling block. And Paul says, let me go ahead and take that stumbling block out of the way so that y'all can listen to us talk about Jesus Christ. And you can't hold that against him by saying, oh, well, he's not circumcised. Because obviously he's leaning more to it, towards his Jewish culture and heritage than his Gentile culture and heritage. So Paul says, folk out there know that about you, that you're mixed racially and that you're uncircumcised. I'm going to circumcise you so that that does not hinder you preaching the gospel to Jewish people. And Timothy let Paul do that to him. You talk about faith. That's faith. I got to trust this man with the knife. Brother, don't sneeze. We also know his eyesight was jacked up. On Wednesdays, we talk about he saw the bright light. And then late in Galatians, man, we know your eyes are bad. You know, homeboy like, mm, stand still. <laughs> oh, my God. A few more things about Timothy. Timothy traveled with Paul and the other men. Acts 16.4, Romans 16.21. Timothy became an ordained minister under Paul. And they laid hands on him. 1 Timothy 4.14. Paul and other men prophesied to Timothy and over Timothy. They spoke a word about what they see God doing in his life. They spoke about his future. So the men affirmed him. A community of men spoke a word of prophecy. Timothy was charged with many difficult ministerial tasks by Paul, like overseeing the churches at Ephesus. The Bible says in 2 Timothy 1.7, which we'll cover maybe next week, that Timothy was a timid man. He was timid. Some versions say that God has not given us a spirit of timidity or a spirit of fear. So Timothy was timid. He didn't want to suffer the way he saw his spiritual father's suffering. Some of that is just natural. Timothy was also a sickly young man. Paul told him in 1 Timothy 5, man, you got to take some wine for your frequent stomach ailments. And then finally, Paul not only called Timothy his son, he also called him a man of God in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11. He called him a man of God. So again, more public displays of affection more encouragement. Man, you are a man of God. Every person, especially every man, needs someone to encourage them, admonish them, and show public affection towards. It was Frederick Douglass, the escaped slave, emancipator, and author, who once said, 
It's easier to build strong children than to repair broken men. He said it's easier to build strong children than to repair broken men. Now, I understand what he's saying, but just because he escaped slavery and wrote some books and all that stuff doesn't mean he didn't miss the mark on this one. I believe he missed the mark on this because with God, broken men are repairable. I said broken men are repairable because some of us didn't get reared the quote-unquote right way. And even for those of us who did get reared the right way, that didn't mean we didn't stray. In other words, all of us are broken. All of us have proclivities and, and broken places. All of us are jacked up in need of grace. And many times the best person to help repair broken men is another repaired broken father <laughs> who, who learns some things in life and, and who has a couple of war scars to prove it, but has learned obedience from what was suffered that that repaired man who was and even is a broken man to work with this broken young man. That's the kingdom of God. There ought to be a theology of brokenness in the house of God. Because like Jacob, we all walk with a limp. And the limps don't disqualify us from doing what God has called us to do. Because when folks see that God has done it through a person with a limp, through a person that's broken, from a person with a past, God gets even more glory and it encourages other people to say, if God can work with a broken guy like that, he can work with a broken person like me. Let's pray. Dad, thank you. This is real. This is good. I thank you for the men, the fathers that you've given me. I know that's one reason I am what I am today. And even where I am is because of Harold Williamson Sr. And because of Alan McFarland because of Tony Evans, because of Sherman Smith. I've had men, I've had fathers in my life. And I thank you, Lord, that you've allowed me to live long enough to have a couple of spiritual sons, starting first and foremost with my son, but other young men who you've allowed me to pour into to encourage as well as admonish. This is the kingdom of God. So, Lord, for the weeks to come, would you teach us as we walk with you through 2 Timothy? Thank you for this relationship. Thank you for this personal letter that we get to peer into 2,000 years later and still find application for our lives. Lord, I pray for that young man out here who feels fatherless. And he might even have a father at home. I pray, Lord, that he would recognize first and foremost he's covered by you. But then also, Lord, let him see the value in his father if his father is alive. If his father's walking with you or not, Help him to see and help fathers mainly to pursue our sons, to spend time with our sons, to sit down with our sons, to touch them and hug them and affirm them. Look in their eyes and tell them how much we love them. Lord, start a revolution with that. You said before you come, the heart of the fathers are going to turn towards the sons and the sons towards the fathers. You did it in your first coming. You're going to do that again in the second coming. So, Lord, we can hasten your return when fathers and sons start loving each other. Heal, Lord. Heal homes. Heal hearts as only you can. In Jesus' name I pray. 
Amen.